Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the Social Enterprise Alliance podcast. My name is David Gaines, one of your hosts, and today we are talking about social procurement. One of the best ways to support social enterprises is to buy their goods and services. This not only goes to us as consumers, but within our organizations, making sure our purchasing practices also prioritize buying from other social enterprises. Today, we have three guests, David Simnick from Soapbox, sharing with us a little of their story and how they have been able to sell to large corporations, Mike Arcus, who leads one of SEA's first affinity groups, the Corporate Sellers Collective, and from Rebecca Dre, one of SEA's board members who is also one of the most passionate and well-informed people I know about the topic of social procurement. So as we get started, let me introduce David Simnick. David is the CEO and co-founder of Soapbox, a company whose mission is to empower customers with the ability to change the world through everyday quality purchases. Soapbox products are currently shelved in tens of thousands of stores across the United States and beyond. As an Eagle Scout, Dave's dream was to found for-profit companies with a social mission at their core. He's worked on various sides of the startup industry, helping companies expand, getting the ball rolling with funding and publicity, making connections, and putting ideas together from the ground up. So everyone, welcome David Simnick. Hi, David. It's great to have you on the SA podcast today. We're really looking forward to this conversation. Honored to be here. Yeah, so we've been eager to talk to you today about Soapbox. As Lauren and I talked through the theme of procurement, you came immediately to mind because one of our SEA's members recently went on vacation and was thrilled to see Soapbox in her hotel room. She had first heard about Soapbox through Toasting Good and was happily surprised to see a social enterprise product that had made this leap into a corporate setting. So just as we begin, can you tell us a little bit about that story you know, where did Soapbox begin and, and what led you to, to this now new level of getting into a hotel and, and earning kind of like that corporate contract? Yeah, uh, so, so it's a great question. Um, the story of Soapbox is, is one of not giving up, um, really to just simplify it as, as humanly possible. Um, we started back in 2010. I used to be a subcontractor for the United States Agency for International Development. I wanted to change the way that we were doing a lot of our water sanitation hygiene work. Um, so called up my best friend, said, hey, we're going to start a soap company. He was like, are you out of your mind? <laughs> <laughs> like, You decided that you want to start a company and possibly one of the oldest consumer products as well as one <laughs> of the most competitive categories. I don't know if you've heard of these companies called Procter & Gamble or Colgate or Unilever, but you know, they're only multinational and within, you know, the fortune 500, why not? Sure. So uh, we started in local farmers markets and mom and pop shops, and we started growing and, and building and, you know, I think our story uh, was always just incredibly authentic to people because we started thinking of the mission first mm -hmm. instead of, hey, we want to start a personal care company and we have loads of CPG experience and, you know, we need to have a mission a part of this because that's cool or trending. Um, whereas we had not the slightest clue of what we were doing and mm -hmm. failed forward in pretty much every way that you could. Uh, and, and that caught the attention of of some people who um, made some really important decisions at Marriott and uh, we just kept on building that relationship and uh, Delta Hotels by Marriott was was our first partner and then we launched into um, 
Marriott Vacation Clubs. And then we uh, started uh, baking uh, makeup wipe removers basically for every hotel. Um, so uh, we produce 75 million uh, makeup wipe removers every year. Um, they go into Hilton, Hyatt, Marriott, IHG, and other banners um, and other, and other uh, hotels. Um, so that is just one part of our business. We also have a, a huge fitness side of our business where we take care of um, Lifetime Fitness is a wonderful partner. We do all of their shampoo, conditioner, body wash, liquid hand soap, lotion. Uh, and uh, that is, that's really more the B2B side of our business. We have a, a very significant retail component um, of where we sell to Walmart, Target, uh, Kroger, uh, Walgreens, CVS, Rite Aid, and a ton of other uh, different outlets throughout the United States. But with that being said, uh, there are tons of mistakes that we've made. And for each and every item that is purchased, either on the B2B side or the direct-to-consumer side or the retail side, whatever it might be, we're donating a bar of soap. Um, and that's, uh, that's materializing in a wide variety of different ways. So if we're Working in Uganda, for example, uh, that could be coming through a grant that we have through an amazing program called the Eco Soap Bank. Uh, and that's then materializing through that individual that the grant uh, recipient is making over a certain amount of years. Um, it could be a recycling program that we're working with in the United States and Cambodia and Australia. There's just a, a ton of different places that we have the privilege to, to do work um, that that solves a real and uh, immediate need. So it's it's like, honestly, the, the best part of the job is is the impact that we're able to do. Um, I also uh, get to work with 20 incredibly qualified people, much more qualified than myself. And my chief responsibility is just making sure that they're caffeinated day in and day out. That's awesome. What like a fantastic story of just insane growth. It's really mind boggling. I'm really curious, you know, we're talking about making this leap. And of course, you know, it, it comes through a lot of time and a lot of work, but, you know, starting out in farmer's markets, ending up in hotels and retailers and, you know, gyms. And you're, you're talking about how you spend a lot of time cultivating those relationships. Tell me a little bit more about that. I mean, especially thinking about it from the perspective of like, you know, some of our members are, are social enterprises that might be interested in, in getting into the corporate space so or into the procurement space. So how does one do that? How do you how do you start? And then what are some of the things that you have to keep in mind as you're building those relationships? Yeah, I, well, it's an excellent question. Uh, the first thing I would say is don't take no personally. Uh, we hear no all the time. Uh, we still hear no all the time. And uh, the other thing I would say is when you're trying to land a really big a really big contract with a really big organization, depending on the makeup of the listeners, uh, there are huge initiatives for uh, supplier diversity. And there are also huge initiatives in terms of sustainability and for mission-driven uh, suppliers to help out these Fortune 100, 500, 1,000. Uh, so thankfully, that the winds are behind your back. I'd say that Depending on the procurement person and or team, there's going to be concerns about your ability to execute and deliver. Right. So once we got one major flag, 
on our deck and we said, look, we've been supplying Marriott for years, uh, that made things a lot easier in terms yeah. of our, our capacity, our capabilities, our proven you know, ability to ship and source materials and so on and so forth. So all of that helps tremendously. The other thing that is really interesting is uh, LinkedIn's your friend. Like I absolutely mm. just reach out. I mean, I think you got to think that a lot of people are, re- I, I receive an ungodly amount of LinkedIn messages every day. Uh, <laughs> and there's no way that I can, I can keep a track you know, on top of all of them. But right. a lot of these procurement managers, they're not receiving as many as you'd think. So I'd say, you know, try to reach out to everyone within an organization, try to tell your story. If you're doing this for the right reasons, if you really believe in the mission, whatever it may be of your organization, it will resonate with someone. And, yeah. you know, it took, um, we cannot disclose their name, uh, but it's a, it's a very substantial coffee chain. Uh, and we do um, a lot of their products and it took 18 months to try to get in there. Um, wow. And, you know, we had, no pun intended, many cups of coffee at their at their headquarters before yeah. actually we were able to uh, win them over that that we could take on such significant parts of of um, their business. So, what I would say is that you know it, to anyone listening who wants to go after these sizable contracts um, with the Fortune 500, it takes time, it takes persistence, yeah. it takes. Uh, getting you know others to believe in you and and you know demonstrate your capability, but uh, just don't take no personally and keep on being politely persistent. So, is your social enterprise component of Soapbox has it always been primarily rooted in like a buy one give one type of model? Always, from day one, we should update our website. We're at twenty four million uh, in bars. Um, wow! How that's materialized is. You know, just depends on on where we're working. We are at about 1.5 to 2 million additional bars every quarter, um, so that's a ton of fun. But uh, yeah, there's what we're able to do and how we're able to show up um, in communities, both domestically and abroad, in a service-oriented, sustainable way. I know those are just you know buzzwords, but um, for anyone who like really wants to kick our tires, like please do. Like we care very deeply about the work that we're able to do with our, with our partners. Um, but that's always been the mission from day one. It's also been the mission because it's been the easiest to, to communicate to our consumers. Right. Um, yeah. I think the, I think the other thing is back in 2029, 2010, uh, there was so much talk about water, but there really wasn't a lot of talk going on with hygiene. And that's where I, I saw the need and that clean water is great. It's, it's essential. Uh, but, you know, teaching uh, the importance of hygiene after defecation and before meal prep can have substantial reduction in acute respiratory illnesses and diarrhea illnesses. And then on the domestic side, just the ability to, to restore one's dignity through a shower program or through uh, homeless centers that have a shower program or a hygiene program, like you donate a winter coat and that takes care of a client's need for a season, potentially a year, whereas the amount of soap that a shower program goes through is just is massive. Mm-hmm. So um, we, we see the need pop up every day. We see the need by how many inbounds we get on a weekly basis from charity partners. Uh, and it makes me just incredibly dedicated towards growing a brand that really is able to, to I, we're not, you know, we're not 
solving cancer here, um, but we do believe that what we what we do matters. It sounds like too that there's um, there's an evolution. It's beyond a buy one give one, but you're trying to continue to push the conversation. Like just in kind of some pre-interview questions, you mentioned that you're going to be launching a new product line, and there there's some objectives around reducing waste, working with young women. So there's this evolution. Can you tell us a little bit more about that too? It's not just like a checkbox that you finish and then you're done with social impact. Mm. Yeah. So David, that's a that's a perfect question. So we're a little different and most consumer product good companies actually don't do what I'm about to say that we did. Uh, and for good reason, we have acquired a bunch of other brands. Um, so we acquired Bushwick Kitchen back in 2018. It's a excellent condiment brand. And then after we kind of got our sea legs of what it's like to acquire um, and, and build out that capacity, uh, we acquired two more brands last year. Uh, the waste that we put into our landfills, the, the, you know, the questions on how much actually gets recycled and just because you put it in a blue bin, you know, what actually happens to the bottle afterwards has always been top of mind for our team. So we're incredibly excited to be launching uh, something truly innovative that the market really hasn't seen. And uh, I can't really disclose that much uh, beyond just saying be on the lookout uh, at a major mass retailer come February, March, because there's going to be a, uh, a huge disruption in the baby care uh, market. Um, and, and I say that with a lot of humility. Um, as with brand launches go, you don't even know if it, I mean, Unilever doesn't know if a brand launch is going to go well. Um, there's just there's one way to really see it after all the focus groups and testings and everything that you possibly can do. And that is, does the market like it or do they not? So we're, we're eager about this. We've put a lot of time and effort in it. If, if it does work, uh, then the reduction in plastic that's going in our nation's landfills is going to be pretty significant. Um, and we're very excited to be innovating and out there trying to put a little dent in the universe. So a lot of the, the story of like getting into a major retailer is, is some work then to communicate directly to the consumer. You talked about how LinkedIn is your friend for the B2B purchaser. The consumer clearly is a massive group of people. But when you speak to someone individually, it's, it's very easy to say like, you should use our product. Here's the story behind it. And most consumers are like, of course, I want to make an impact. Like we all kind of are coming into the store with this heartbeat. How can a social enterprise best communicate directly to that consumer? Because in a grocery store shelf with lots of other competitors, you kind of get one shot to, to do that. You you asked the multi-million dollar question. Um, <laughs> like, I'd almost say hundreds of millions of dollars a question. Uh, the, what's really interesting about front pack, so like front of your packaging communication of a social mission to the consumer. And and we, I'd say this with 11 years of experience of a ton of failure. She or he or they are there in whatever that aisle is to buy a great product for themselves. That doesn't mean that they're selfish. Most consumers believe that they're good people and that they donate a lot to charity. Whether that's the case or not, it doesn't matter because that consumer is at that shelf, whether you're selling peanut butter or shampoo, like do not get in the way of why 
someone is there. Mm -hmm. So first and foremost, the best advice that I could give to anyone running a mission-driven uh, social enterprise, CSR, whatever it might be, like you have to communicate why that product is better. First, like full stop. Like, so one of the things that we made a gigantic mistake on in the early days is we would scream our charitable mission at the top of our lungs as the biggest asset on the front of packaging. And what we found out is that the consumer does not care, right? Mm. Like they care as a loyalty repeat purchase, right? but they're first there. And I'll just talk about soapbox. They're first there to buy an amazing shampoo that's free from sulfate and paraben and silicones and EDTA mm -hmm. and all these other nasties because that's what they're there for. Like they are there to buy great hair care for themselves or their family. Uh, the mission is the cherry on top. Right. And I say this to, you know, I, I say this to anyone on our team. I say this to any budding entrepreneur. I say this to, you know, people, friends I have at Unilever where I just say like, you have to remember why a consumer is there and what they are looking for. That's not to say that they can't be swayed towards something that really inspires them. But ultimately, like, it's like if I, if you guys went to a car dealership and you were there to buy a car and uh, the only advertisements you could see on the window of the car that you were really interested in was about how this is going to plant a ton of trees. You're like, that's great, but still tell me the gas mileage. Like, I, I, I need to know why this matters for me. And then all of the other things that are outside of the direct benefit to the end consumer are the tipping reasons why someone chooses your brand over someone else. I will say Soapbox has crazy loyalty. So when we look at like the long-term value of a consumer, we can actually spend more to capture that consumer because we know that uh, she, he, they really care about not only the quality of products, the affordable price point, beautiful design, obviously I'm heavily biased, right? Like take all this with a grain of salt, but also the mission. And I think one of the other things is, and you know, I know that way back in a time, Lauren, we talked about this on the back of each one of our items is actually something called the hope code. So this is actually a unique code per this one item. It's not per a batch. It's not per uh, UPC. It's actually per, the, you know, this one item that I have in my hand uh, has a unique code that you can take to our website, put that in and see exactly where your one for one went. Now, wow. about 1.5 to 2% of people actually come and redeem it, which is far higher than what we actually thought was going to happen. Uh, but we never expected that, you know, 50 or 60% of people would take the time to take their body wash, you know, to their computer or their mobile phone. Like we expected them to, to be like, cool. Soapbox says they're donating. I believe that they're donating. But it is really interesting because, David, you were bringing up a point earlier of like, you know, are you more than just providing a soap and however that shows up and wherever we have the privilege to serve? Absolutely. I think the other part is that we're able to take a customer on this journey and say, hey, you bought a great body wash, but look at what else you did. Mm. And that to me is is also one of the coolest things about our brand. Well, very cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, David, thank you for coming on and sharing your story. I think we walk away very quickly with many different nuggets to pursue both on the B2C side as well as the B2B. And congratulations on your story and your success. Yeah. And 
It's incredible. And continuing your social impact. So that's what it's all about. Well, appreciate it. I have a discount code for all of your listeners. Oh, awesome. If if you stuck with me, unfortunately, for all this time, at least there is some <laughs> payback. Uh, 10% off anything you want on Soapbox uh, on your first purchase. It is uh, SEA Podcast. Uh, doesn't matter if it's all caps or under caps. Just do under caps. You don't have to hit another key. Uh, but <laughs> SEA Podcast, all one word, 10% off anything on Soapbox. Thank you guys so much for the, the invitation. It was just such a pleasure telling you guys what we're up to. Thank you, David. So good to hear from you. This is awesome. Michael Arcus founded Helping Hand Rewards, now known as HHP Lift, in 2007 to combine his passion for helping others with his expertise in the incentive industry. For 42 years, he worked for his family's incentive business, Hinda Incentives. His journey to create HHP Lift began with volunteering at a social enterprise starting in 2004 that specialized in making handmade soaps and spa products. In 2007, when this idea was successful, he founded Helping Hand Rewards, the predecessor to HHP Lift, to connect social enterprises with workforce development programs to the incentive and promotional products markets, which serviced major corporations and organizations throughout the states. At the Lyft Workshop in Chicago, individuals with barriers to employment are onboarded to produce, design, and market luxury spa goods, hand sanitizer, personal soaps, masks, and more. The goal? A successful career path at HHP Lyft and beyond. So just to give a little bit of background information before we dive in, a few months ago, SCA launched our Affinity Group program. And basically, Affinity Groups are community building and peer learning initiatives that allow members to meet others who share their interests and experiences. They can be formed based off of industry, topic, impact area, geography, organizational role, business model, or pretty much any other kind of category that you can dream of. And our goal is that through Affinity Groups, members will have the opportunity to share resources and support with one another, learn from each other, and collaborate, and thereby contributing to a true alliance of social enterprises. Mike Arcus, thank you for joining us on the SEA podcast today. We're so happy that you're here. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Awesome. So a little background information. Just a few months ago, SCA launched our Affinity Group program. And Affinity Groups are a community building and peer learning initiative that allow members to meet others who share their interests and experiences. Affinity Groups can be formed based on industry, topic, impact area, geography, organizational role, business model, or more. Through Affinity Groups, members will have the opportunity to share resources and support learn from each other, and collaborate, thereby contributing to a true alliance of social enterprises. Well, that was quite a bit. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Mike, you and, a, and your colleague Dana launched our first ever affinity group, the Corporate Sellers Collective. Tell us a little bit more about this group and your vision for it. Well, I come from a, a background of uh, selling to corporations. Uh, I was the founder of HHP Lyft. And we sell products to corporations for business gifts, promotional products. We also sell to retailers, consumers, promotional products companies. So we're in a broad spectrum of space. But the background I have is 42 years of experience with a family-owned incentive company. 
and because of that, I focus on the corporate market. And the reason I was interested in starting the uh, CSC was an experience I had back in 2017. HHP Lyft is a not-for-profit. I went to a meeting of a variety of not-for-profit organizations, and one of the speakers was from B Corp. And prior to uh, becoming a not-for-profit in 2015, we operated as an S corporation, and we, we were a B Corp. So I was very familiar with the organization. After the uh, session, I, I met with the speaker, and I explained to him that their organization uh, rewards applicants to become B Corps in their assessment tool by giving them points for doing business with women-owned and minority-owned businesses, but did not even mention doing business with social enterprises. And we worked together, and we identified the areas where they could include social enterprises in their assessment tool. I contacted the then president of the SEA to follow up, but the reality is that her job had many responsibilities, and you can't expect her to focus on this thing. And, you know, over time, this thing just faded. So when the new affinity group program was announced, I saw this as an opportunity to give rebirth to, to that uh, goal. That's what got me started. Now, the interesting thing is that even if we were successful in getting B Corp to give assessment points to their members, and their members get reassessed every two years, so it's, this is a constant uh, opportunity to have them go through the assessment tool, there wasn't anything on the SEA site that would enable a corporation to come to the site and find all the uh, social enterprises that did business with corporations. So there was two two missing steps. One, engaging B Corp, and two, providing the tool that would enable corporations to come to SEA and find a resource. In other words, in my mind, doing business with social enterprises needs to be on the same footing as doing business with minorities and doing business with women-owned businesses. And therefore, SEA and CSC can become the vehicle to help accomplish that. If you take a look at the industry that we're in, one of the industries we're in is, is promotional products industry. That business annual revenue is $24 billion, okay? If you think of all the social enterprises that do business in that market segment, we would be probably be somewhere between one one-hundredth and one-tenth of one percent market share. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah. In, in my mind, the goal isn't to, for us to worry about you know, how we compete with each other. The goal is for us to work together to develop market share. And, you know, <laughs> if let's say we're at one fiftieth of one percent, you know, if we got to one tenth of one percent, we'd be doing five times more business. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the potential is, is enormous. Th- I think cooperation is much more important 
for us to work together to build the market for all of us. And there's no reason why, if you take a look at it, you know, if you sell coffee to a corporation, we sell business gifts, Keras, you know, is uh, staffing, there's uh, organizations that do shredding, there's a whole wide variety of services and products that corporations can be buying from social enterprises. And there's no reason why we can't be encouraging people to do business with multiple social enterprises instead of just one and to attract uh, corporations that want to do business with social enterprises to give them the tool to do that. Yeah. Well, I know well, for me, like I love that. And, and I love how you took this initiative to create this affinity group because without question, you know, to tap into that market share, how do we share best practices with one another? How do we be a little bit more of that collective to show the buying power, to, to even help other folks that are, you know, looking to corporations and their procurement policies to help give them the language that you just shared with everybody. So I think that that's what gets me excited about affinity groups and, and why I'm so happy that you started this first one. I'm glad to do it. Yay. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's, it's all it's all very exciting. And so this is something that's a new initiative, you know, it's, it's just kind of getting off the ground, kind of launching. And, you know, this Corporate Sellers Collective is our, our first go at it. So we're really excited. So Mike, for anybody listening, can you share a little bit about how, you know, the logistics of, of the group, how you all meet, and how they can kind of get involved in it? Sure. Well, we're on Slack. You need to go on Slack and show your interest and join our group. I'm waiting, and we've actually accomplished enough that there's enough people that have contacted or are listed in the group through Slack. And I will be trying to schedule as many as I can in an upcoming Zoom meeting in, I would say, the middle of October. And what I've talked about is my vision for the CSC. But, you know, there might be other visions that are equally important from other mm. members of the CSC. And, you know, we would welcome that input. I'm willing to put some time and effort into my idea. Maybe some other people would like to help or maybe other people would have ideas that they would like to put some time and effort into. The future is upon us. And, you know, we welcome all kinds of input and let's see where it goes. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, Mike, thank you again so much for joining us today and leading the charge of this first affinity group within SCA. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. We're really excited to see where it goes. Yep. And for anyone listening, I think, again, this just shows the power of why we're so happy about this new initiative of an affinity group. Uh, such a great way to share information amongst members, to become this collective, to gather momentum, encourage each other on. So we are looking for people to keep starting affinity groups. If you're really passionate about food and beverage, that would be a great channel and one I certainly would love to join. Um, how uh, an affinity group around women empowerment or minority owned social enterprises. You know, if you think about what interests you and we can help empower you build out a new network within SCA. Uh, one more mention, if you're unfamiliar with Slack, 
as I was. Uh, <laughs> Lauren is a great tutor, and uh, just uh, email her, and uh, she'll uh, get you on board. Yeah, that's perfect. Fantastic. I appreciate that, Mike. Plug for Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> well, very fun. Mike, thanks again for joining us, and uh, we'll, we'll see you soon. Okay, take care. Well, today we're joined by one of my favorite SEA connections, Rebecca Dre. Rebecca, you also sit on the board of SEA, and you and I met just through leadership and, and being involved with the chapter, got to meet in person at the Chicago Summit a couple of years ago. But you have led the charge for helping build better procurement practices for SEA members. Your passion and experience overflow in this area, so naturally, you first came to mind when thinking about helping others become better sellers and buyers of social enterprise products and services. So uh, just thanks for being here. Thank you, because it's exciting to be here talking about social procurement as well. So let's just dive right in. Can you tell us what is social procurement? You know, for, for people who don't know in, in kind of layman's terms, what even is it? Sure. So, so social procurement is when... An organization, any organization that buys things, chooses to buy them from a social enterprise business or an impact business, so a fair trade organization or whatever. So these are like the things that they buy every day, office supplies or marketing services, like really everything and anything that an organization buys. So all of that 23 trillion of spending that the US does every year. That's just it's buying goods and services. So social procurement is just making a conscious choice to do some of that purchasing through social enterprise or impact businesses. So you're from the UK originally. And I know just through stories that this is a little bit more of a common practice in other countries, especially in Europe, whereas with the US, this feels like a new idea. Yeah, well, the interesting thing is that social procurement has been kind of happening in the US, but not, firstly, it hasn't been called that. And secondly, it's just done in silos. So even though it does exist, it's not really been a sort of coordinated effort for the country where, for example, in Scotland, you know, it's a small country and they Scottish government spend about 450 million pounds a year wow. purchasing from social enterprises. So um, oh, and that's wow. just the government. So that's not even looking at, you know, at all of the other purchasing that happens. The UK has a commitment through the government called the Social Value Act, which says that if you're a publicly funded organization, you should be spending at least 25% of your purchasing with certified social enterprises. So, wow. yeah, so Social Enterprise UK has a goal of a billion pounds being spent in social procurement. And lots of other countries also are doing social procurement. And, and you know, Canada, our closest neighbor, is way further ahead than we are in terms of government and corporate construction industry, for example, lots of different areas where social procurement is happening on a grand scale. But yeah, pretty much across Australia, New Zealand, a lot of Europe, many other countries have got a really 
robust social procurement space happening now. Wow, that's really fascinating and unfortunate for us, you know. <laughs> Hopefully that's something. I know that's obviously something that you're you're working towards getting more of that coordination here in the US. But just a quick clarification question. How is social procurement different from supplier diversity or buying local? What's the differentiation there? That's a really good question, Lauren, because I think it's something that's really misunderstood. And in the US, particularly, supplier diversity is really well known. It's, you know, pretty much every organization is intending to do supplier diversity or buy local. And it's fantastic. We're not at all trying to say don't do those things. We're trying to say that the impact you can make is bigger if social procurement is part of that. So if you think about aggregated impact, if you take a black owned business, for example, most black owned businesses in the US are small. So if you do supplier diversity and you choose to purchase from that business, yes, you're impacting the person, the founder, you are probably impacting you know, their family and some economic support for that community. But research shows that roughly every hundred dollars you spend purchasing from a local business, around 68 to 73 dollars stays in the community. Whereas with social procurement, you're purchasing from a business that, again, may indeed be founded by a black person, but also as well as benefiting that individual founder that social enterprise is also benefiting you know it has a social mission so it is spending more than half of its profit on creating bigger impact so it's like ripples on a pond right you know if you one drop is purchasing local add to that supplier diversity you've got your two ripples then add to that social procurement you're going bigger and bigger and bigger with the impact that you can create through your purchasing so really getting the word out that social procurement isn't about replacing supplier diversity or buying local it's about adding to it increasing the impact and and really benefiting more people at a wider scale yeah and that is exactly the words that came to my mind was it's like oh wow there's like this ripple effect going on when you increase that so I think that makes a lot of sense. I know that for SEA, one of the things that we're working on is is also identifying, you know, who really is having deeper impact. What is the definition of social enterprise? Clearly, this is part of the conversation in terms of procurement, like knowing who really is having an impact. Are B Corps and social enterprises the same? So, you know, the B Corp movement has been around a long time. And what I would say about it is that in the beginning, it probably was the classification that an impact business could give itself was becoming a B Corp. So there very well are lots of B Corps that are within the, you know, the B Labs database. But traditionally speaking, now in the, you know, in the modern day, a B Corp and a social enterprise are not the same organization. B Corps don't have to be asset locked, like a, a social enterprise has to show that it's definitely investing, you know, for us, for supplier diversity and being a certified seller, you would have to show that you are using 
more than 50% of your profit to create impact. A B Corp doesn't have any regulation on how much impact it makes or how much it uses its profit. You also can't be a non-profit organization, a 501c3, and be a B Corp. You can't apply. But a lot of the 501c3s in the US are trading. They are selling goods and services. So in essence, they are social enterprises and they would probably meet the standard. And actually, Society Profits set up a quick quiz so that an organization could just answer six simple questions to find out whether or not they would be eligible as a social enterprise to get certified and join the seller database because it's such a misunderstood question in the US. And also because if you're a social enterprise, you can take just about any legal form. So there are about seven or eight different legal entities available in different states that you could be and still be a social enterprise, which is why having a certification for us and having criteria that you have to meet is more important than just what kind of legal entity you chose as an organization. Gotcha, gotcha. So kind of, you know, in line with that, thinking about, you know, the requirements of being a social enterprise and being a supplier in that case, do you think that there are enough social enterprise suppliers in, you know, let's say the U.S. ecosystem specifically to meet? Well, and I guess it's a double question, too, because then what is the demand, you know, on the corporate and government side? How does that supply and demand work? So interestingly, I'm going to be on a panel in about a week at the Social Enterprise World Forum talking about exactly this issue of building up supply mm-hmm. and demand at the same time for all wow. of the different organizations like Bisocial USA that are based in other countries. So Bisocial Canada is going to be there and Akina and some others from New Zealand are going to be talking about this same issue because what we're trying to do with this work is really build both at the same time. So on the one hand, we have some corporate and government organizations that are expressing interest in purchasing from social enterprises. And then at the same time, we have social enterprise leaders saying, well, you know, is there a demand out there? Does anybody want the things that that we sell? So we're working on trying to raise awareness because of the issue that I just talked about around their legal entity and nonprofits, not calling themselves social enterprises and so on. We actually think there are way more than a million social enterprises in the US. Wow. They're just not necessarily self-identifying. Sure. Yeah. So part of this whole issue, part of doing the quick quiz, part of work for us working with corporates like SAP to have them publicly say, we are searching for these goods and services is to be able to sort of show the demand side and also uncover the supply side. And interestingly, that's common to all of the intermediaries like us around the world. So we were talking about it yesterday in prep for this session at the World Forum and and the others were all saying exactly the same thing, that quite often supply and demand, it's sort of a seesaw effect that you end up with either too much demand or too much supply. And you're constantly having to weigh up the two sides all the time and try and increase both sides at the same time, which is sometimes difficult. Well, and for me, that relates a little bit to, um, you know, even the supplier diversity and buying local conversations and even B Corp. Like 
I remember the first time I went through their process, I didn't qualify. And honestly, it made me a little bit upset, but because it felt like I am doing something. And honestly, even with the definition of SEA, I'm not quite sure I qualify or not, but it's still like this journey. And as we think about buying local and if the diversity of, of your entire supply chain includes social enterprise, I think it also helps to maybe empower that local business to be thinking a little bit more along a social enterprise term as well, right? So that's why this journey conversation, I think, is so important. I think it relates to what you just said here, too. So let's say there is a company that is like starting to key in and learn about social enterprise. They want to begin and take those first steps. What are some small steps that a company could take to become more of that social enterprise, like to to work towards that so they can plug in and be a supplier? And also, what are small steps that a company can take as they look towards social procurement and adding that to their supply chain? So I think the small steps that an organization could take is just being more intentional in their purchasing. So if you, you know, you were just saying about your own company and doing the B-Lab questionnaire and so on. So as a company that purchases things, you could be saying to yourself, well, is there a way that I could do things differently? Are there suppliers that I could seek out who would actually help me create more impact? You know, are there just individual ways that you can purchase differently in your everyday purchasing? So we have um, within BiSocial USA, we have the, the BiSocial pledge, which is just, it's literally a pledge to explore. So companies sign up, they give us their logo and they say, no commitment, you know, to anything specific. I'm just really interested in pledging to explore social procurement and seeing the small ways that I could perhaps put a social enterprise into my supply chain. And then if I'm a social enterprise, I would be thinking, you know, maybe I'll do the quiz and see whether I'm eligible to apply to be in the seller database just reach out to the to our organization and find out more about the opportunities that are out there now and how to use a certification you may have already if you're a fair trade organization or just take those initial steps to find out if you can be a seller and one of the things that social enterprises and can, and the buyers both say is what if they're all too small and a lot of social enterprises are small, but one of the things we're doing with by Social USA is actually aggregating, pulling together consortium of bidders. So for example, for the contract we're doing with SAP, if they are looking for, let's use coffee, David, as a good uh, example. So say they're looking for coffee suppliers for all of their offices across the US. Well, that's a huge contract and Letezza, probably wouldn't be able to meet the demand, you know, but what SAP has said to us is, okay, we we trust you that, that you can put together a group of companies like Letezza from all over the country who have all been put into your supply chain and maybe 10 or 12 or 20 of them can bid collectively for that piece of work. Because if we don't start somewhere with small steps, none of them are ever going to grow big enough 
to compete with the other big players that are not social enterprises. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think that that's even, again, the power of SEA is creating this network, is knowing who we all are. You know, I've learned to change my perspective of, you know, how do I see other coffee roasters as competition, but also as teammates, right? And there has to be a, a little bit of a rising tide raises all ships attitude, even if it's a little bit hard to do for that exact reason, right? And so the network of SEA, I think is really important. And that's what gets me excited about some of the work that we're doing with affinity groups and things like that. For procurement, I mean, your role on the board, you've been really leading many of these initiatives within SEA. What is SEA currently working on that helps our members become better in this area? Yeah, a, a few things. And I think Summit's going to be a great time for us to really come out the door shouting about some of these things. But we are absolutely working on not just in the affinity groups, which is a fantastic place to start, but also things like at Summit, we're going to have a whole section that's on accessing markets. So accessing as a B2C seller, accessing as a B2B business to business seller as well. Social procurement will be part of that. SEA and Society Profits have partnered to look at certification for social enterprises and Society Profits is donating its profit to SEA to help the movement. And specifically, we didn't set up, when I set up by Social USA and Society Profits, we specifically didn't set them up as membership organizations because we really believe in the power of SEA and it being the membership organization, you know, curating that network of all of these different networks that are all over the country and working on amazing things at a grassroots level. That's great. And it is really just like such an exciting time to be a part of SCA. You know, there are so many initiatives, so many things happening that helps, you know, plug all of us and plug our members into these you know, more impactful projects. So we talk at, when we talk about social procurement and, and all of these different ways, we say that really it's about organizations learning how to buy better or how to, you know, lots of people talk about build back better. Mm. A really easy way to build back better after COVID to create racial equity, economic equity, all of these things that we're tackling as a country now is just to buy better. So, because it's simple, we can all vote with, with our wallet when it comes to that impact that we can make. Well, very good. Um, every time we talk about this, I learn a ton and we talk quite a bit about this. And I still learn <laughs> a ton. So, uh, so I'm sure that this is a great thing for our members to hear. Definitely make sure you guys get plugged into an affinity group. And if you do have questions, uh, reach out to Lauren on how to plug in. And yeah, we just look forward to pushing into the movement and especially using the power of that dollar purchase, uh, both with as an individual and within your organizations to deepen all of our impact. So Rebecca, thanks again for joining us. And um, oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you all. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Social Enterprise Alliance and our topic of procurement. If you enjoyed this episode or if you learned something that can help your social enterprise, make sure you share this episode with people that you know. 
and leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts. Also, we would love for you to consider joining SCA. We would love to get you plugged into our network to help each other build our social enterprises and truly begin a movement. Have a great week, everyone. Thank you.